Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we're audibly impassioned, recognizably rambunctious, and ever so emphatic, but we're not even mad. We are three people who sometimes don't agree, and we take joy in that status. Today, we speak of Trump 2024, how wokeness fared in the midterms, and the gender politics of the White Lotus, as we vow to relish the discourse because we are not even mad. Who are we specifically? Jamie Kerchick is a columnist for Tablet Magazine and author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Jamie, what's your favorite all-time HBO series? I'm very unoriginal. I'm going to say The Sopranos. Tis a good one. (laughs) Virginia Heffernan writes for Wired and for her own substack called Magic and Loss. Same question, favorite HBO. Ooh, you know what? I like the comeback, the one season show of this, the comeback, which was so great with Lisa Kudrow as a washed up sitcom star. Come on. Why not? Interesting. I'm going to go with, yes, Sopranos and The Wire, but I'm going to say Watchmen and Mayor of Easttown in the last couple mm-hmm. of years oh, were fantastic. Yeah. yeah, no, it was great. And then I learned how to, um, I, I learned the uh, Delco accent. <laughs> Overdose. Right. The murder dirter. I, by the way, am Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. And so let's start with uh, this fella. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. What? The thrice married, twice impeached, one term ex president is running again? You heard it here on Not Even Mad for the 421,000th and first time Trump is running for president again. Okay, so while most one-termers slink away to expand Habitat for Humanity or helicopter parent their own little John Quincy Adams into extending their dynasty, you can't kill Trump with a stick. This announcement comes just as Republicans are boisterously blaming Trump for bombing the midterms and some GOP eminences like Chris Christie and Rupert Murdoch seem to be trying to tweeze Trump shrapnel out of the GOP and bind up its wounds. Now, surely everyone from us to Ivanka Trump to Mitch McConnell to anyone who prefers democracy to its alternative craves a return to the workaday matchups between, say, DeSantis and Biden, two men who don't advocate capital coups or intravenous Clorox. But Mr. Undead is undaunted, and it looks like Trump's rider dies, who elected some 278 election deniers in the midterms, seem to be pretty stoked. And those rider dies are good at stoked. The proof now is that the most recent national head-to-head poll shows Trump leading all prospective 2024 GOP candidates, with 49%. DeSantis is at 24%. Now, one thing, and this is sort of my PS, but that seemed kind of sad for Trump, I got to say, even in the polls that have him up, is that he's now designated as Trump Sr., presumably to distinguish him from his own little excitable Don Quincy Trump Jr. That alone seems to suggest some decay in Trump's stature. Maybe nothing gilded can stay. 
So, Jamie, what do you think? Is Trump like an old senile Vegas performer trying to play the palms again, or is he the once and future king? He might be both. Um, I'm hoping it's just the former. And I can't think of a better time for the Republicans to make a break with this guy. Uh, He's a loser. If you look at just all of the candidates that he supported, with the exception of J.D. Vance for the Senate, lost in races that they could have won. Uh, In Arizona, where um, several Republicans also won congressional seats. In Georgia, where Brian Kemp, the governor, won uh, eight points over Stacey Abrams. We saw Trump-backed candidates losing. So clearly there are Republicans and others who are perfectly willing to vote for Republican candidates, just not Trump ones. So he has a very bad record in this last election. And I think that the uh, incredible performance of Ron DeSantis in his overwhelming landslide victory in Florida should make the case that he has a better chance of actually winning the nomination. But, you know, history is no guide here. And uh, Donald Trump has obviously, um, you know, uh, outdone expectations many times in the past. People like me, uh, other political commentators have counted him out, and he's surprised us. So I'm not here to make a prediction, but it's hard for me to think of a better situation uh, for the Republican establishment or what's left of it to finally move on. It is a nice it is a nice uh, exit ramp or yeah, it looks like it could be time for change. I like that way of thinking of it, that this is an opportune time to uh, to renovate the party. What do you think, Mike? Well, Virginia, I definitely agree with your plucking, tweezing shrapnel from the wounds, although in some cases, maybe they're cauterizing a limb that was severed <laughs> clean off by all the havoc that Trump wrought. But what Mike, I have, Mike, I always, whenever I try to push a metaphor, I'm just yeah, like, where's Mike going to go? one limb further, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> I go out on that missing limb. Yes. So, but the point is, and what I try to do with myself is to not get into the trap that we've all fallen into many, many, many times, which is to read reality as being very bad news for Donald Trump because so many times in the past it never seemed to redound to his actual defeat. So what's the difference this time? I could think of two things. One is, if you remember in 2016, and I guess for much of his presidency, but definitely during the run in 2016, he had appeal. His voters and people who become his voters found it very appealing that he would go after and show cruelty and certainly irreverence to not just Democrats, but even his fellow Republicans. The irreverence to the Bushes, John McCain, somehow played well. But that was because those figures, especially the Bushes, maybe less so McCain, but those figures weren't really popular in the Republican Party. So when he tore Ted Cruz's wife, a new one, and his father, a new one. He wasn't doing it to a figure that was very much beloved or even liked. I think maybe with Ron DeSantis, it doesn't just, DeSantis doesn't just represent a rival, a potential rival for us prognosticators to say, oh, that's the guy who could beat Trump. DeSantis is a new and exciting figure to Republicans. So the more Trump tears him apart, maybe Republicans will say, well, what are you doing? We kind of like this guy. We have no we have no problem with Ron DeSantis. That's one. The dynamic might change because I'm searching for things that could be different. But the other big thing that can be different also is mentioned in your intro, Rupert Murdoch. And yes, it was true that Trump wasn't Fox and Murdoch's preferred candidate last time. But as soon as it became that Murdoch's business interests were aligned, uh, he would be. But Murdoch 
Fuck is really going after Trump. A mocking headline in the New York Post. Okay, fine. That hits Trump's basal ganglia, right? <laughs> but then for the more cerebral side of Trump, there is a Wall Street Journal editorial yesterday where the headline is Donald Trump's presidential rerun. Will the GOP nominate the man Democrats know they can beat? And the strain of loserdom is throughout this editorial. Last week's election showed that clinging to 2020 election denial, as Mr. Trump has, is a loser's game. The country showed it wants to move on, but Mr. Trump refuses because he can't admit to himself he was a loser. Concluding line, if Mr. Trump insists on running, then Republican voters will have to decide if they want to nominate the man most likely to produce a GOP loss and total power for the progressive left. So I will say, if he's lost Murdoch, and it won't be permanent, Murdoch has business interests first and foremost, but if he's lost Murdoch, then it really is different from last time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. The the But I, I'm going to ask for a thought experiment from both of you um, fellas. Um, imagine that we have we had the last six years, but we had them with the sound off. So there was like no ethnography, no pontification. We just watched sort of Trump move in, you know, give his uh, inaugural speech, move into the White House, move out. I think we might say that Trump, he's run for office two times now and in his whole life, and he won once. People like Ezra Klein have convincingly uh, argued, I think, that his victory was a victory that would have gone to any Republican. Um, that, you know, we like to think he punched a hole in reality because on that Twitter he did. Is, that I don't think is true. Yeah, but, I just oh, think sorry, in general, uh, Ezra Klein will never convince Jamie of anything. But please, go ahead. Uh, all right, fair. <laughs> but that after two terms of the Democrat-Obama, people were going to switch. That That's, I think, Klein's argument. I think a lot of prognosticators who called it yeah. for Trump just were simple. It was Occam's razor he was going to win. And then he ran in 2020 and he lost. And one thing that there's this weird thing where we he tells us how popular he is, how he's our favorite president, how many people were at his inauguration. And as much as we say, like, no, you're lying. That's not true. Some part of us is like, yeah, he's a real threat. I mean, if we watched him with no sound, we would see a one term president who was decisively voted out in 2020, whatever he says about it, and, you know, was voted in on with a pretty slim margin in 2016 and has been a loser in every single other election um, his party has. So I'm not sure I um, I think that we need to think he's so formidable. You know, the the discourse is so hot and thick around him. And if he were Carter after one term, we would say, what a disaster. I hope he, as a Democrat, I loved him, but I would never have wanted him to run again. So I'm not, I'm, I think this might be foregone. I think his significance lies in how he changed the party. And most of the leading candidates are going to be running on Trumpian platforms. I mean, Ron DeSantis is Trumpy in his politics and his gestures and his whole gestalt. But what all those other candidates lack um, is the Trump personality. Um, is the uh, you know the the authoritarian impulses? I mean, DeSantis has his own authoritarian impulses, but they're more gestural than I think they are genuine. Um, they're not going to you know wreck um, the constitutional fabric of the country in the way that Donald Trump is. Um, so I think that's where his significance lies. Uh, his personality is ultimately, I think, what is turning and has turned people away from him and what I think will also do going forward. I also think his obsession with relitigating 
an election that by the time 2024 rolls around will have been four years old. Uh, I don't see how that is going to be a winning campaign uh, agenda Mm -hmm. for him. You're obviously right that it's important that he has changed the party. But the question is, can he win again? And what you're getting at, Virginia, is the idea that every bit of evidence, like solid evidence, evidence mm-hmm. with the sound off, right, without without all the bluster, says he can't. So I have to keep examining, what did we get wrong about 2016, about his strength? Is that playing out now? Yeah, I'll acknowledge that he changed the party, but could it play out again? I mean, it very much could in that Republicans still really like the guy. The people who will actually come out and vote in Republican primaries. Remember, right now we're blaming him for foisting upon us, or not blaming him, let's say crediting him, if you think a Blake Masters win would have been a disaster, but we're crediting him with foisting upon us all these horrible candidates. But the dynamic was he runs roughshod over Republican primaries. That will still be the case. So then when he's the Republican, just the Republican, he gets something like 40% of the vote automatically. And if he's running against maybe Joe Biden, who hears a call to arms and doesn't want to retire, I think the game is afoot at that point. And that's the sort of scenario where I would say, yeah, it's true. He really sank the Republicans in the midterms, in the last midterms, in his own reelection. But it's well within the realm of possibility that his big impact is not just how he reshaped the party, but the fact that he's a real strong possibility of being president again. You know, we uh, we were texting in our contentious way. Um, listeners, we t- sometimes hash these things out in group text. Um, and, and then uh, what do I do? What do I do to really tell you that I'm pissed off? And oh, oh, my it? gosh. Come on. Everybody knows that this is the like the real way to signal how mad you are. Virginia, <laughs> comma. You said blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Using caps, someone's first name. Yes. It is so it's so oh, big. God. Mike. Oh, God. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> so, so, so it turns your first name into a weapon. It's a great strategy. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, so you were pointing out, Mike, that, you know, for all this talk that Trumpism is over, we still got almost 300 election deniers uh, voted in to Congress and other offices. So, uh, you know, that's a pretty big deal. The one thing I might say, though, is that it doesn't look like any of them, with the possible exception of Carrie Lake, and I think there's half another challenge somewhere else. These no, election no, that deniers, one's done. Hobbs, Hobbs, Hobbs is one. They call. No, no, it. no. I know, no. But I, what I'm saying is that they they're not uh, challenging the results of the elections. Oh, they right. just lost yes, yes. the election I think deniers. And Carrie these are Lake stru- owes it to her brand to challenge, right? Yes. She, right, exactly. <laughs> but she's she. I mean, these are are strenuous election deniers who you know could have been seen as anti-democratic candidates for their bluster. But again, watch them with the sound off, and they just are you know in general acting in a very civilized way. So t- actual Trumpism. I mean, look, I think Trump was a black swan and I think he um, an orange swan. And I, I agree with Jamie in the sense that I, it's him. It's his personality. Like you don't have Nexium without Keith Raniere. You, it just it can't <laughs> reconstitute itself. Sometimes you can plug the sun in, but he doesn't seem to be able to do that with Junior. So I, I think that, um, you know, Trumpism especially as it concerns the, you know, the events of 2020 leading up to the insurrection. So all the QAnon stuff, all the uh, all the anti-vax stuff, anti-mask stuff, anti-medicine, all the way up to the insurrection, those things are gone with Trump. 
Uh, well, that would be a wonderful thing if we're done now with election denial as a rote response to people losing elections. Uh, I'm not so sure that's going to be the case. It does seem that this is a deeply held belief among a set of the Republican base. Um, but I agree with Virginia. It is it is quite revealing and it is a cause for optimism um, that there have not been the, the feared wide-scale um, serious challenges to this election and that the Republicans um, seem to be taking it. I don't know if in stride is the right <laughs> phrase, but they seem to be accepting the results, which I think is is good all around. Same for Stacey Abrams too, by the way, who, you know, in her in her rhetoric leading up to the election was making noises that there was no way that she could lose. Um, but she did lose and she accepted it gracefully, which is something new for her. So I'm glad to see that as well. While while I gently rebut the comparison, though, it is true she denied the election. I th- I interpret things a little bit differently. I think that there is the lack of widespread denialism shows that it was a feint or an obligatory gesture on behalf of the actual candidates. I know you said most of the base and maybe the base, the yahoos, the ignoramuses, the hoi polloi, the unwashed demanded it. But it does seem like the elites, even the elites named, you know, something other than Gosar and Biggs, knew that it was just a game to play. I don't know that that's so heartening. In fact, you could argue that it's uh, more worrying that they go along with such a dangerous thing just because they're in the thrall of the strongman. But, a lot uh, of Republicans who tell pollsters that they think the 2020 election was stolen, I'm not sure if they genuinely believe that. It's a way for them to say F you to the media. It's a way for them to express their displeasure. I mean, remember, only 800 people stormed the Capitol. Um, there were lots more who said they didn't think that the election was fair, but they stayed home. Um, they didn't actually threaten democracy actively. So uh, once the guy who's been leading this charge, that is Donald Trump, who made election denial um, basically his his signature issue, once he's gone from the stage and we have a figure like DeSantis or anyone else really as the leader of the Republican Party, I would like to think that that would open open the path to election denial no, long, no longer being a recurring feature of American politics. Jamie, Mike, we have to go to break, but we'll be back in a minute in our cool, civil, not even mad way to discuss topics that blow hotter heads to bits. And we're back with Not Even Mad. The Democrats exceeded midterm expectations, but this guy was perhaps the night's biggest individual winner. States and cities governed by leftist politicians have seen crime skyrocket. They've seen their taxpayers abused. They've seen medical authoritarianism imposed, and they've seen American principles discarded. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It was a typical politician's framing, which along with an early reference to choosing education over indoctrination, maybe represented the stray remnants of the issues that were such big winners for Republicans in the 2021 off-year election, namely parents' rights or CRT in public schools or wading into medical questions 
or even questions of who could participate on girls' sports teams. Andrew Sullivan, engaging in self-reflection in his newsletter, wrote that the strong showing for Democrats on Tuesday, quote, did not amount to the kind of decisive rejection of Democratic leftism I favored and suspected would happen. I was wrong, is Sullivan talking or writing. I remain convinced that wokeness is terribly destructive to liberal society, but my obsessions are obviously not everyone's. Okay, it's tempting after an election to ascribe the totality of the winning party's agenda as a total winner and the losing party's agenda as a complete disaster. Also, let's take into account that DeSantis, Greg Abbott in Texas, Brian Kemp in Georgia, they all did have big victories and all campaigned and governed on issues like schooling and trans rights. But let's talk about the, whatever you want to call it, woke schooling agenda that was supposed to help so much Republicans in their quest to retain or gain power. Virginia, you were really excited about talking <laughs> about this. Do you think the midterms are the death knell for CRT mongering and the like as an electoral cheat code? I mean, I'm going to say I'm going to say a few things that I hope they won't exactly be what you guys expect from me. Um, The main thing is that I strongly dislike arcana in politics. And this is uh, this is on both sides Uh, in 20. And it could be even in the center. In 2012, Paul Ryan, I don't know if you remember this, but for some reason he was hoping to mandate or be part of a Jim Jordan proposed bill to mandate transvaginal ultrasounds for pregnant women. It was sort of a blip, but maybe you remember it. I've had many ultrasounds in my life and been to many gynecologists, probably unlike the two of you, although I don't want to presume. And uh, and I don't know what a transvaginal ultrasound is. Uh, All I could... It's great branding. It sounds fun. It does sound a lot like a lot of fun, right? You're yeah, there's trans and I don't know. It seems kind of um like I imagine some tesseract involved. Anyway, all of a sudden the concept of transvaginality uh was in the public square. And you know, we had poverty was on, on the rise. We had uh, you know, we were still recovering from the um from the financial crisis. We had two wars, and transvaginality is just far too clinical and too arcane a subject to waste time on. Critical race theory. I mean, come on. It's transvaginality all over again. To ask voters to loop legitimate concerns about their kids' education, which right now is literacy and math, right? Those are the things that we expect from schools. And those are the things that have been falling off since the pandemic. So to suddenly ask them to think about this postdoc methodology that I actually studied in graduate school and still couldn't tell you exactly. uh, You know, I found what I heard useful. I still couldn't tell you exactly what it would mean for a kindergartner or an eighth grader or a senior in high school. Why not address parents' real and universal concerns that literacy and numeracy are in decline in the U.S. since COVID? Yeah, I was going to associate myself with Andrew as well, and that I think I place too much emphasis on uh, popular discontent over woke issues. But I think the error that we made was in thinking that these would have an impact on federal election races. These are ultimately issues that are decided at the local school board level and the state level. Um, So they were crucial in Glenn Youngkin winning in 2021. I think they were actually the decisive issue was schools and education policy. Um, I think they were crucial in Ron DeSantis becoming the uh, extremely popular leader that he is in Florida today. So I would not discount these issues in American politics. And I think that the Democrats and liberals more broadly 
are doing them themselves a disservice if they think that concern over issues like crime, certainly, which is also another issue that is more uh, that is dealt with more at the local state level, um, issues like crime, wokeness, if you want to call it that, CRT, um, trans trans issues. Um, there is uh, a, a groundswell of concern over the direction that the Democratic Party and the left has taken on these issues, but I think voters are smart and they realize that, you know what, these are not issues that are going to be ultimately decided in a Senate race or a congressional race. It's better for me to express my views on these by voting for candidates who support my view of things at, say, the school board level in the state house, the state Senate, and the governor. Right. The midterms don't show that wokeness is off the table, especially when you look at, good point, federal uh, elections. If you look at the governor's map and the governors that were successful, I named a few. Almost all the governors in states that we associate as red states that won re-election and won re-election handily, and there were more of them than Democrats, those maps pretty much, I was going to say map onto, but transpose very nicely or very scarily onto the maps of states which have banned trans girls from participating in girls' sports. So it is it is active. I don't know how much it drives the average voters. I would say that it was a big driver of that one election we all paid a lot of attention to, Yunkin versus McAuliffe, but that's because McAuliffe, you know, had the classic gaffe where he said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And he tried to walk it back, but at a time when parents were concerned, they voted in a governor's race on that issue. Glom onto that CRT, glom onto that some of the medical interventions that I really think is actually uh, bordering on a, a human rights abuse to ban doctors from doing what doctors do. But I do think that it is an issue. I still think it's an issue in politics. And I also think, and I want to caution, that it would be really wrong to draw too many lessons about what worked and what didn't work on the, on the success of the Democrats in the last election because, and almost no one is pointing this out, the Democrats lost the last election. What? They exceeded expectations, but they lost in the House. They lost in the Senate. Wait, Mike, you're saying they held the Senate or maybe won a seat. No, there were 20 Senate Republicans who won, 14 Senate Democrats who won. That was the map last time. And we're still pending the results of Georgia. More Republicans won in governor's races. So this whole, oh, let's defer to the winning formula of Democrats. Please realize it was a losing formula. It just didn't lose as badly as everyone thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just to focus a little bit more on the on this uh, the the woke issues. Mm -hmm. um, I actually I think there's something to this thing of what parents want on school boards, um, and I think we're missing what it is. Um, I mean, all this arcana, transvaginal and critical race theory have got to be a proxy for something else. Um, and I don't think it's a proxy for just racism. Um, you know, and, and I and then and then the anger that, you know, someone who objects to critical race theory is racist. And then you get into another conversation about who's racist and who called me names and whatever. You know, I think the touchstone here is the uh, 1925 Scopes trial, how we came to think about what parents were afraid of, if I may, in uh, school curricula, in high school curricula. 
And that is such an interesting case because the subject, evolution and Darwinism, was not of any interest to any of the parents. They, they, They just noticed that their kids were coming home saying they didn't believe in God, right? Teenagers. And so they scoured the curriculum to figure out what could be making them feel this way. This is a time when Tennessee schools had crosses all over them. They were praying in school. There was nothing about the school that was atheist or even secular. And yet they so they looked through everything and you could find, you know, if you wanted to find something that contradicted the literal truth of the Bible, you could say, well, water doesn't behave in a way that would let the Red Sea part. So this part of our chemistry class is wrong. But anyway, they they turned up this biology class. It seemed confusing to them. And they decided that it, because it contradicted the story of Genesis, was the culprit and that parents should be allowed to ban it. I think there's actually a kernel of something kind of moving in that story and in the CRT story, honestly, which is like, we all are worried that our kids are going to adopt new views. They're going to pierce themselves or come home not believing in God or come home with a different religion or come home communists or come home Alex P. Keaton. And the, I, do, I do think that in this conversation with school boards, we have to recognize how fraught that is for parents who feel like their kids are going to come under the influence of uh, ways of thinking about the world that are not theirs. There must be a way to pull this back to treat the emotional core issue of the fear of losing your children without going into, you know, these silly proxies about uh, subjects no one really understands. Well, that's certainly a framing favorable to the idea that (laughs) incorporating the 1619 project directly into the curriculum is just progress purely and doesn't have any attendant problems along with it. I think that if you look at the rise of a group called Moms for Liberty, they're certainly opportunistic and they're everywhere. And I have friends in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and they overrun the school board and they're very much organized and they're, they agree with the likes of uh, DeSantis and Greg Abbott. But, and, and they are doing what you're saying. But I would reject just because parents have an anxiety, they're wrong to have the anxiety, that de facto the anxiety is just them getting in the way of progress. Although I will, because you mentioned the Scopes trial, I'll try to correctly quote Inherit the Wind from memory, (laughs) where they- where they talk about uh, the fear of progress. And the proxy character for H.L. Mencken, though it could have been uh, Clarence Darrow, says, you know, there is always a price with progress. I can give you the airplane, but the clouds will stink of gasoline and the birds will lose their wonder. So yes, that is true. The birds may lose their wonder if we (laughs) adopt the 1619 Project. Yeah, I don't think it's a very fair comparison to compare the parents who are concerned about their children being taught that if they belong to a member of a certain race, that they therefore bear the guilt of what other people did who were members of that same race generations ago. I don't think that they're that we should be likening parents who are concerned about their their children being taught, you know, abstruse gender theory. We should be likening them to parents who thought that, you know, evolution should not be taught. I think that's a very unfair comparison. I think that if you do look at the curriculum in some some of these school districts, what's being pushed now is really radical and is inappropriate and should not be taught. Uh, I don't think you can all just write it off as racism or uh, transphobia. I think these are genuine. I mean, I think I just said I'm not. Yeah, no, no, it I'm not saying you racism. are. I'm not saying you. No, I'm not saying you are. But I think that this is a legitimate, real issue. You know, I again, that's why I'm. I'm afraid that this. Uh, I think both sides are perhaps interpreting this election 
in the wrong way. I think a lot of Republicans are not realizing that um, this was a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism, while a lot of Democrats are mistaking their so-called victory or their better-than-expected performance um, as basically, you know, carte blanche to continue pursuing um, cultural policies that are not popular with the American people or that, and that are going to inspire the very backlash that they claim not to want. I mean, I think maybe in some of these school board meetings, we should talk about education and guilt. I mean, you know, I definitely learned about class conflicts all the way through, uh, all the way through high school and and had a card carrying communists in addition to arch conservatives among my public school teachers. And I I don't remember that guilt was something I took away from a kind of socialist analysis or communist analysis. Um, I don't, I don't know why this thing that people are being educated into some guilt about their families or suddenly they have to bear all this guilt. I mean, like horrible things have gone on in history. Some of the things have been done by people who look like you and some two people who look like you. But projecting guilt is a weird way of thinking about history. Um, It's a weird way to cloud your own learning. Mm. (laughs) Well, I do have one piece of practical advice, and that is if you want to be a communist, just don't carry the card. The fellow communists aren't going to want to see the card, and it just will give you a way to (laughs) go. But let us leave the battlegrounds of Tennessee and Tallahassee or wherever for the sumptuous shores of Sicily. Up next, we discuss the politics of the White Lotus and by implication, the Godfather. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Not Even Mad, and here's a clip from Season 2, Episode 3 of the hit HBO series, White Lotus. It's because you're nostalgic for the salad days of the patriarchy. They're undeniably great movies. Men love The Godfather because they feel emasculated by modern society. It's a fantasy about a time when they could go out and solve all their problems with violence. And sleep with every woman. And then come home to their wife who doesn't ask them any questions and makes them possible. Hey, hey, hey. It's a normal male fantasy. No. Movies like that socialize men into having that fantasy. (laughs) Movies like that exist because men already do have that fantasy. We're hardwired. Comes with the testosterone. No, gender is a construct. It's created. You spend all that money on Stafford, he comes back brainwashed. In that scene, three generations of the DeGrasso family, grandfather Bert, his son Dom, and Dom's son Albie, are vacationing in Sicily. In the scene, they are visiting the site where Michael Corleone saw his young bride blown up by a car bomb in The Godfather, that nostalgic ode to American immigrant machismo. Each member of the DeGrasso family is a sort of stand-in for a particular type of American masculinity. There's the libidinous Bert, the archetypical dirty old man who can't stop hitting on the hotel staff. Sex addict Dom is torn between a long-suffering wife who wants to divorce him back home and a pair of sultry young Italian prostitutes. And finally, Stanford graduate Albie, who's the sort of post-me-too Gen Zer who asks permission before leaning in to kiss his love interest. The creator of The White Lotus, Mike White, is a brilliant satirist of contemporary American social mores. The first season of the show, set at a luxury resort in Hawaii, satirized the American class system. Season two documents the multi-generational transformation of the American man, from the toxic masculinity of Bert to the wokeness of his grandson, Albie. 
Whether you see this transformation as a descent, an improvement, or a wash will say much about your sexual politics and probably your politics, too. Virginia, what say you? First off, I actually think Dom may be the most progressive figure here, the one that sits in the middle, because he's actively wrestling with what he sees as, you know, deep, intractable desires. And, you know, I'm only as many episodes into the show as exist, so I, I don't know how it plays out. But, you know, he really thinks of himself as as a sex addict. And, I mean... Addiction is a subject near to my heart, and it's a moral process. It's 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 Saint Augustine. It's the whole the origin of thinking about confession is confessing to uh, a surplus libido, to um, you know excesses of uh, of high of virility, um, and uh, and he seems to you know. Albi just doesn't have those leanings. So he's not wrestling with them in the same way that, that God, what's wrong with me? In the same way that Dom is. And I, I think it's actually interesting to see him wrestle with, um, with sex addiction um, and sort of I, I just try to think morally about his responsibilities as a husband and a father, um, whether or not he comes to terms with them. Um, there have there actually been a few, and I've written about this, a few of the kind of Me Too fallen um, who came to me knowing that, uh, that I'm in a, in a 12-step group and said um, that, you know, while no one's apology had been exactly accepted or rehabilitation from Me Too, um, they wanted to put in a good word for people who had done SLAA, which is the Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous program. And, um, you know, it's a very, it's a very strict program. I mean, it really is like, you can't drive past a, a strip club. You can't, uh, you know, you, you, you work it out with your sponsor, but you do these, you know, and often there's praying involved. Um, a, a guy I know in, in SLA, won't walk with me. Uh, like, a, you know, he, he's, he's sort of in the Mike Pence mode of he can't, you know, he doesn't take walks with women alone. Um, I don't know, maybe this, that all sounds very, very, uh, well, you know, paradoxically conservative, but, you know, these guys are, they're working off amends, um, in some cases, working on, uh, gender issues with the UN, two of them are, and, you know, you're not allowed to uh, crow about your sobriety in that program. And so it's quiet, but I like the seeing Dom wrestle with that. So I, I think I might like the, uh, Gen X, you know, maybe rising sort of boomer type in it or the, whatever he is, 50, 60-year-old Dom as a way of, of struggling with these issues. I'll be, by the way, if you're going to be woke, don't tip your hand by saying gender's constructed. They hate that. You got to play your cards a little closer to your chest. I would be happy to coach you in this. Give me a call, Albie. Well, I don't know if uh, Michael Imperioli's character, Dom, is really wrestling with anything. I mean, we saw him reject but once uh, the entreaties of a sex worker. And by the way, I've been... It does seem that as the stigma has been lifted from the sex worker, it's been put on the client of the sex worker, and it should be, maybe that's just, but shouldn't it be, I don't know, as 80% of the stigma leaves the sex worker, it shouldn't mm. be 80% more stigma on the patron? Uh, it, if, if sex work has no shame to it, how does actually paying for sex work have a shame to it? That's anyway, actually, that's not a sidebar. I think 
I think that's a really interesting question. Well, I think the shame is that he's married, right? That's right. that's what the shame is, yeah. at least in yeah, this Yeah, yeah, and case. it's breaking up his marriage. But my my main point with that, I want to get back to The Godfather for a second, what his what Albie's actual thesis was. I don't know. Mike White has put this in motion. I don't know how much he really is wrestling or just lied to himself or is being hypocritical in one episode that he said, no, I'm gonna, not going to sleep you, with you tonight. And then he looks around the bar and sees all these other attracted women. Although if someone is, uh, is sex addicted, that's how they're going to see the world. But the question of does The Godfather or movies like The Godfather, which, you know, he says valorizes infidelity and violence. Violence, yes. I don't think uh, the the characters that were not faithful in The Godfather were seen as particularly heroic. Anyway, does The Godfather create this in ourselves or does it reflect it? It's kind of an age-old question, but I would think that a movie, even popular movies, can't really create the social mores or mores. I think they are a reflection and a great artistic reflection. I think that it's only... And to test the theory, you'd have to go throughout every society where... Movies about gangsters and antiheroes and people operating outside the law who we get a vicarious thrill of living through, they're everywhere. So it wouldn't seem, whereas the uh, acceptability of those kind of characters differ from society to society. So I do think Albie's theory is mostly bunk. Uh, then we could get to the rest of the gender politics of the show itself. Well, I think, I mean, aren't we supposed to understand that it's not about the actual analysis of The Godfather, which blessedly we are not going to get into right now, <laughs> but about about the so-called, you know, would-be red flag that should descend on you when you hear that someone likes The Godfather. Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot more going on in it than, you know, a, a, a glorification of a certain kind of masculinity. But it, I, I still think this is this is a supremely interesting scene. I mean, just just as a um, as a not quite satire, I don't think of of mores, but as a as a very stylized way of playing out three different approaches to sexuality. Um, and Mike White is, of course, gay, so he's also there's something a little bit um, cartoonish or, or about about each one of the characters in it, because straight sexuality is probably not totally where he lives. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I just find it a wonderfully, um, suggestive scene, not as a seminar class on masculinity, but as a way of refracting, uh, these questions through these different lenses. Also, man, F. Murray Abraham playing an Italian. Fantastic. He can play any, he's one of these rare characters like Tony Shalhoub, I believe, uh, John Turturro is, is another who can play any ethnicity. Yeah. Um, I mean, with the exception of, you know, obviously of, you know, Africans, right? But it seems, you know, Latin Americans, Greeks, Italians, Middle Eastern Jews. I think there's a certain, there's a certain quotient of swarthiness you have to hit and then the, uh, <laughs> yeah. then it's open for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find uh, Albie also, interestingly, I think like many Gen Zers, if the numbers are to be believed, is probably not having a lot of sex either, um, which is a huge part of this. So, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I told you guys this, but uh, the CDC's, advice on sexuality, which I looked into for a story during the pandemic. I think it's still the same, which is during AIDS, they said use condoms. Now they say stick to online jerking off. Yeah. I mean, I I was like, wow, sexuality is a bummer now for that crowd. I don't know exactly where. I do think this season is about, among other things, uh, sexuality and sexual politics and the way the first season was probably a lot about class. And I don't know where it's going to land, probably not in a castigating way, 
more of an exploratory way. I think it's interesting that Mike White is queer. His dad, I don't know if you know this, was, I do. was a major figure in the evangelical world. Ghost wrote things for Falwell and such, came out as gay, and they you know, now appear on uh, reality shows together. <laughs> so I think he's attuned to a certain hypocrisy mm. as, it, uh, as it interacts with sexuality. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, he he's also uh, I sh- I just put in a plug for his his um, season of Survivor. I thought he was really fantastic. Actually, tw- two seasons, and he almost won the second time. Yeah. So he was he on Survivor around. and the Amazing Race, right? And the Amazing Race with his father. Yeah. It's unbelievable. <laughs> what range? He's what they call a multi hyphenate, I believe, in Hollywood. That's right. It was. The, <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be uh, tap dance, uh, sing, and act. Now it's two different kinds of reality shows and a scripted series. <laughs> yep. Okay. So what I liked about that was that there was a little bit of tension, but a lot of sweetness. So you could say in that conversation, we left the gun and took the cannoli. Okay. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) That is it for the main part of the show, but not, I think, my favorite part. It's time now for the things that just grind our gears, the things that get our goats. We call them the goat grinders. Virginia, what is your goat grinder this week? Okay, the Grammys. Grammys grinding goats. There was a long stretch when, okay, I didn't see the bands I loved most. There was no pavement. There was no Liz Fair going into the Grammys, right? You have to leave. We, like our <laughs> because darling it's 2022, bands. is that what? Because it's 2022. <laughs> yeah. But even, you know, in the, in the better part of this, this millennium so far. But at least then the acts were ones I had fully heard of. And I still used to dream that on one long winter vacation, I'd put on Taylor Swift or Brandi Carlisle and figure out who they were. But time has sped by, and now the nominees are out, and among them are Doja Cat, Bad Bunny, and Steve Lacey. Mm -hmm. And their names mean nothing to me. So I fear it's all too late. I'm going to start leaving the flashlight on on my phone like an old person, signing my text to my kids, love mom, and it won't be long now. I would say Bad Bunny definitely loves Scarface. I'm just going to guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait. All right. So I got a red flag there. I can stay away from Bad Bunny. JB, what is grinding your goat? Well, mine comes from the annals of Germans behaving strangely when it comes to Jews. And this story uh, popped up last week. The German branch of Kentucky Fried Chicken, believe it or not, pushed out a Kristallnacht promotion. Kristallnacht being the night of broken glass when German Nazi stormtroopers destroyed synagogues and Jewish-owned businesses. It was really the prelude to the Holocaust. This was the alert that the, that many Germans received on their phones. Quote, Memorial Day of the Reich Progrom Night. Treat yourself to more tender cheese with crispy chicken. I don't know what to say about this. Other than that, I would not want to treat myself to this particular German meal. I'm not a huge fan of German food. I've lived in Germany before, um, but this sounds particularly unappetizing. I mean, for Kristallnacht, you'd think or maybe even hope they'd put in this case. At least Jewish food, right? At least if they're going to if they're going to do a Kristallnacht promotion, make it, I don't know, like Rugelach or, you know, gefilte fish or something. Why, you know, fried chicken and cheese. It's not even kosher. That's the biggest insult. <laughs> that is the biggest insult. I mean, that 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 might be further than a goat grinder. I'm surprised that's legal in Germany. <laughs> we should say that this was, they, they said it was a mistake, and I take them at their word. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. 
Well, my my go grinder is less of the crimes against humanity variety and more of the things that just stick in my craw a bit variety. The I voted sticker. Now, the reason I talk about it is that we're (laughs) furthest away that we can ever be in the taping of a show from actually voting. So we will have enough buffer to think about this for the next time. But I really first got to really thinking about the I voted sticker. And it is weird. It is odd that the election, you vote in an election, the results of the election in our fraught and at each other's throats country almost always is assured to piss 40, a high 40 something percent of the country off. So why do we celebrate voting when we actually hate mostly the results of voting? If the the implication of the I voted sticker is I voted for the guy you liked or the woman you liked. And maybe that's true because we live a little bit in geographical silos. So when I see an I voted sticker in Brooklyn, it was probably for a Democrat. And when someone in Sugarland, Texas sees an I voted sticker, same thing for the Republican. But if there were a little asterisk and underneath it said, I voted for the Republican, I think a lot of Democrats would punch that guy in the face. Same if you flip the parties in the geographic location. But then there's another problem that I have with the I voted sticker. Maybe it's in the category of when you talk about something generally, but not specifically, uh, the etiquette dictates that that's acceptable. Think about talking about a chest cold or your child's achievement in preschool. Sure, sure, sure. If you just say it without getting into too many specific details, we'll allow it. But once you really think about it, it can only be annoying to a vast majority of us. And the last thing about the I voted sticker that's odd and I think a little annoying is that we always mistook high turnout for high civic engagement engagement, a civic good. But I think we're seeing more and more now that high turnout is just a reaction to pretty terrible times and high stakes. So fewer people were wearing the I voted sticker in elections like 2014 and 2010, when voter turnout didn't even touch 50%. But things were a lot happier. So I dislike the I voted sticker because it encapsulates many tendencies I do not like, braggadocio, mistaking responsibility for virtue, and any examination of deeper implications. Not only do you grind my goat, but in the ultimate insult of 2022, I say to you, I voted sticker, you basic. <laughs> I love stickers. I love gold stars. I love the end. And also the people walking around, it's hardly like virtue signaling. It's just like, um, yeah, it's like I did my duty. Look, it's my it's my go grinder. I'm allowed to be annoyed. Jamie, drag me up here. You don't wear an I voted sticker, do you? No, I don't. No. Never. No. <laughs> then again, as a resident of DC, you're somewhat disenfranchised. It's a one-party state. Not even mad is a Peachfish project. The show is produced by Joel Patterson. The COO of Peachfish Productions is Michelle Pesca. Our theme song is by Max Kerman. Content designed by Big Yellow Taxi for all your graphic needs and most of your graphic wants. Big Yellow Taxi. Advertising by Lipson's Advertise Cast. Want to drop us a line? The email address is notevenmad at peachfishprojects.com. Find our website at mikepesca.com slash notevenmad. Virginia Heffernan's essay about how the word woke has come to stand for everything from foie gras to democracy itself is at virginiaheffernan.substack.com. Jamie Kirchick's essay, Nora Vincent's Gender Trouble, appears in Tablet. 
And on the gist this week, Gotham Makunda on how to pick a president. What it takes to become president and what it takes to be president are no longer the same thing. That's true, but Gotham does a comprehensive study on presidential preparedness and has some interesting findings on the seasoned presidents versus the naked ones. Please subscribe to Not Even Mad wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us a review. We love hearing what you think. Until next time, we're not necessarily saying we're right. We're definitely not saying you're right, but we are not even mad.